Пять, четыре, три, два, один. And welcome to the SF in Translation podcast. I'm Rachel Cordasco, and I have a very special guest today, uh, Julia Metov-Hersey, who uh, translated Vida Nostra by Marina and Sergei Diachenko, and that came out last year from Harper Voyager. It is an amazing, what would what do we even call it, a, a psychological horror fantasy <laughs> Oh gosh, it's been classified as uh, buildings Roman. It's been classified as horror, psychological fiction. It's just been all over the place. I think it really depends on how people are reading it. Um, I think of it as uh, a family drama, uh, but I think I'm in the minority, probably. No, I think I think that's. I mean, it, it defies genre categories. And I think there's just so many layers to it that it, uh, every person who reads it reads it a little bit differently. I think that's the beauty of this book, that it's just very multilayered and very complex. Yes. And uh, I told you, uh, you know, a long time ago that I, I wrote an inter- um, a review of it. Which is already awesome because it's not easy. <laughs> this is not an easy book to write a review about. <laughs> I put so much effort into it and it still hasn't come out yet. <laughs> So I can't wait. It'll come out. Um, but anyway, so, okay, so I definitely want to talk about Vida Nostra. But first, I wanted to ask you, um, as a native Russian speaker, um, what your experience was learning English and how your ability to move between Russian and English has influenced, you know, everything, basically how you read, how you write and how you translate. Um, it influences uh, all those things, and it influences how I think and who I talk to, and all this. It's uh, it's a really strange position to be in. Um, I came uh, to the states when I was nineteen, so I was on that sort of weird line between you know childhood and adulthood. So my native language is definitely Russian, and I did have a couple of random lessons um, in English, but I never really learned it until I came here. So I learned it from watching TV. And And to this day, you know, watching TV subtitles is the way I recommend people to learn any kind of foreign language if they can't just go out and talk to people. Watching TV with subtitles is still the best way. But um, that's how I learned. So every time a grammatical question comes up, I'm a little hazy. So Me too. I don't know. Good. (laughs) I'm not the only one. But um, I definitely don't have this, like, strong... Uh, linguistic uh, approach to language. So a lot of what uh, the way I function is really uh, saying things out loud and figuring out if it sounds right or not. But it definitely gives me this constant uh, pressure of not quite ever being sure uh, in either language at this point. So I'm a a terrible example of a, a bilingual person because I'm constantly doubting myself no matter which language I'm speaking so it's it's 
a lot of pressure actually that I put on myself. But uh, at the same time, you know, I've been here long enough to consider English my uh, uh, really my native language at this point. My Russian is very archaic. Uh, I can definitely understand everything and I can speak it, but there's a lot of the uh, language changes that happened since I left mm. a lot and a lot of um, idioms have changed. So I don't have the active knowledge of it anymore. No matter how much I read, it's still mm. not there because I don't live there anymore. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, because so when you came here, was it the 80s? Uh, it was 1990. 1990. Yeah. 1990. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, because, yeah, I mean, you would think like, I mean, to, <laughs> to me and maybe to you, I, the 1990s seemed like yesterday, but um, that that is, you know, like 30 years ago. It was a long time ago. I know. Well, thank, thank you for pointing that out. You are welcome. <laughs> I know. But yes, it was a long time ago. And, you know, the country I'm from technically doesn't even exist anymore. So, of course, the language has changed tremendously. So, you know, every time I read a Russian um, novel, a contemporary Russian novel, or watch a contemporary Russian film, there are things that I've never heard before linguistically. That's, I mean, that's fascinating. And, you know, I, uh, I think I told you when, uh, when we met at ReaderCon or when we saw each other at ReaderCon that, um, I took Russian for two years and it was, um, like, it, you know, it was amazing. I, I really enjoyed it. We, we, I stopped just before we got to like the really hard grammar. But at one point it was just me and one other, um, kid and our professor. And we would just have lots of, you know, conversations, but I was nowhere near fluent, but I was kind of getting the rhythm of it. I was starting to be able to read it kind of quickly. Um, and, you know, I kind of know certain kind of grammatical structures of it. So, you know, I, I'm always, I see any, anything is translated from Russian and I think, you know, wow, if I had taken a little more, uh, you know, <laughs> Well, and, you know, it's it's just like in Vita Nostra, you know, when Sasha studies so hard and nothing makes yes. sense, and then suddenly things just kind of begin to emerge. It's that process, and I always think of it as learning a language, what she's going through. We've all gone through this, all of us who are learning another language or have learned something else. It's that same process, and that's why, to me, it's not about the psychological horse so much or not about the wings or the, you know, claws or whatever. It's about this process of things just kind of coming together and the beauty of it. And not everybody gets to that point. And if you do, it's just amazingly um, rewarding. Not unlike parenthood, you know. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> when you put so much work into this and then finally they sort of begin to emerge. You know? Right, right. And so, then they say bye and, and leave. Right, um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> what can we do? Yeah, that's, that's that is so... Right, that it is like, um, like learning a language because, you know, I've been on the cusp of being, you know, mildly fluent, like in a, in a couple different languages. Well, you have Italian, right? Italian, yeah. I'm, I can read it, but I can't, I can't carry on the fluent conversation. But, but you can translate and you can appreciate the beauty of the language. So, yes, yeah, I love it. Um, because I studied French for so long. The Italian, you know, I'm recognized. I recognize a lot of things. And, you know, Italian, it kind of, if, if you've read, I feel like if you've read a lot of British, uh, 19th century British novels 
or or like early 20th century American novels, and you know kind of the Latinate words. I mean, there's so much of Italian that it's just like, you know, the word is from Latin, like you know what it is in English. It just right, might have yeah. like a slightly different you know, more colloquial. Flavor or nuance, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, all, yeah. I'm, I'm reading it going, this is like almost English. It's, you know, our English is like almost Italian and and it, it definitely has that flavor like in Vita Nostra where she's she's just, uh you know, reading these paragraphs and they make no sense. And right. then, and then they suddenly, do. <laughs> oh my God, I know. And it's just, it's so beautiful. And the weird part is that it has this physical effect on her because, like, the librarian finds her, you know, slumped down and she's completely almost dead from this exhaustion and this uh, whatever euphoric moment that she's experiencing. Meanwhile, I'm translating it and my heart rate goes up and I just had to, like, walk away a couple of times. And it, ha- it does have a physical effect on the translator and I, I've been told on the readers as well. Yes, because I, re- I had to have, like, a few days to recover. Yeah, it it really hurts to read this book. Yeah. It's painful, it I know. It and you know, it reminded me of um of the the surrealism that you that you see in um some uh China medieval books like um Embassy Town and Perdido Street Station where like yeah, people have wings or creatures have wings and they like fly and and it's kind of like, huh, like that's weird, but it makes total sense. Right. And it's also not the point. It's just a flavor, right? It's yeah. not the point, right? It's just a thing. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, he's got wings, whatever. Uh, to me, you know, it's been compared to quite a few things. Of course, you know, the, the um, Harry Potter comparison and the magicians and it's all it's all very true, but... I always thought of it as very similar to uh, the Magus, uh, John Fowles, the Magus, where all these weird things uh, are happening and you have no idea what's going on. And it's sort of kind of supernatural, but maybe not. Maybe it's stage and maybe it's just hallucinations. And you don't ever quite know what's happening. But at the end, it's really about a very simple human emotion. And that's what drives everything and all the supernatural and the setup and the staging and, the, you know, play acting. None of it really matters. It's all mm-hmm. about love and jealousy and, um, and you know, the ability to commit. Um, so all, all those very simple human emotions. Yeah. And like you said, uh, it's, you know, it's like a, a coming of age story because mm-hmm. she is at that absolutely like most impressionable point in her life. Right. Very fragile, very, you know, easily wounded. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you're like, you're like, oh, my God, I actually have to make a decision (laughs) about my life that could change the direction of my entire life. You know, do I go to this place? Do I not? Why is this guy following me? (laughs) You know. And that was that was actually one of the really interesting points that um, when I was reading it and translating it, certain things seemed so obvious to me. Like, of course, she has to make a decision where to go to school at 17 and commit to something and, you know, what's uh, essentially declare her major and be in this job in this field for the rest of her life. And to my absolutely brilliant American editor, it was a question like, why, why can't she? Why does she have to do that? Doesn't she have time to kind of oh. think it through? And that was oh, one of those yeah. things that were so obvious to me. And we had to kind of go back and rethink the phrasing of certain things a little bit and just put a little bit more. Um, we didn't change anything, but just put a little bit more of a justification into the text. 
It's a cultural difference, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting because, see, we had long, my mom and I had long, long, long conversations with my um, Russian piano teacher. <laughs> Who I who I was with for of years. course you had a Russian piano of teacher. Course of course I did. did. <laughs> <laughs> he was from Saint Petersburg, and he uh, gave me all my music. Everything was in Russian, like the titles, like you know the 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 names of the composers, like all the directions. Everything was in Russian, and I would stare at it constantly, not knowing what it said. So you know, it's like I'm living Vita Nostra here, but. Um, he would tell us because he was he was just one of the nicest people and he would stand there and he would talk to us about the the fact that you know you were little and you know they were like okay what are you going to be are you going to be in mu like a musician are you going to be and you know he was put in a conservatory at like 10. Oh, it's kind of late. It was probably more like five. Okay, maybe five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tennis, you're done. <laughs> you're so overage. It doesn't matter. Right. And he rarely, like, he didn't get to see his parents that much. And he said one time he was, um, he was eating lunch. I mean, he was like a, I think it's a teenager. He was eating lunch in like the cafeteria and his teacher came by and was like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm eating. But it's 20 minutes you could be practicing. Right? Why aren't you practicing? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. So when I was reading this and I was, I was, you know, like, okay, this is, you know, this was written in Russian. It's, it's a story about a, you know, about this girl who, who has to make a decision. And yeah, you know, this actually is kind of late for her because, I mean, she's like 16. But yes, I mean, people were expected to just, you know. Right. Well, I mean, you know, mus music and sports are a little different because people did have to make that decision for their children if they had any kind of potential. That's when things started at five and you know six. And but in in most cases, you still had to make a decision because you applied for a certain major and that's what you went to school for. You couldn't just do this. Oh, I'm just going to go to I don't know BU and be undeclared for a couple of years. No, you had to make that decision, and it's still the same way in Europe. Yeah, it, yeah. So it's mm -hmm. not that it's not that unusual, but it does seem harsh to you know even to me at this point it seems a little harsh. So you know my mentality has changed obviously in the last I don't want to say how many years, <laughs> even though you already you just know, a couple blew that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So I mean, when you're translating, like my experience translating is that I've always had an email relationship with who whoever I've been translating and what I do is I'll I'll translate I'll send the text back to the author they'll send it back to me with comments we go back and forth like three or four times and you know and then uh kind of move on from there um what was your experience translating this were you in contact with them uh, so not with Vita Nostra, and I'm, again, I'm a really, really terrible example of how, well, I'm a good example of how not to do things. Um, I, I translate as a hobby, uh, or at least did for years, and Vita Nostra was, I think it may have been the third book I translated, and then I translated like six more, so I've got a whole library of things that is just kind of sitting in my computer, but uh, Vita Nostra, I translated because well it didn't exist and it was so it blew my mind it absolutely changed certain things for me 
journey in the way I process learning and process parenting. And it had to be translated. I was shocked that it didn't exist. And I was told by so many people that it was too complex. It was too Russian. It was too foreign. It was too weird, too scary. It was all those things wow. that that were you know wrong and why it could never, ever be accepted in the States. And I just did it because, you know, I wanted to have it. And so I didn't. And then we tried to... Um, to publish it, but it didn't work. It was rejected. And uh, my, you know, wonderful agent, Josh Getzler of HSG in New York, who is literally the hero, the best person ever met, <laughs> he just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. So eventually it took us nine years wow. you know, from the point I translated to publication. But at, at one, at, in the beginning, it wasn't commissioned and it wasn't, there was no mm. contract. And the authors didn't know I exist. Um, and once it was rejected several times, we I just decided to you know send it to them as a courtesy, like it's not going anywhere. They might as well have a copy. Maybe they have some English friends that the English speaking friends that they can mm. you know give mm-hmm. it to. And that's when I made the first contact with them. And Marina and Sergey are amazing in a way that no matter they're extremely well known, very famous in Russia, and they still read every single letter that they get which I have no idea how they find the time, but they read it and they respond. And so they responded to me and thanked me for it. And that's how this whole thing started. So at that point, I had contact with them. And when we finally got it to publication, I went back and, you know, we were we went back and forth on the certain things that we had to mm. change because there was a big part that we did have to change. And you know how when she's learning and all these things are beginning to emerge, it's all quote based. And a lot of the quotes were from things that were not in public domain. Mm. So we went back and we had to make a decision whether to go for rights or to change it to something like Shakespeare. That was the first idea. And then we decided we were going to change it to quotes from Dichenko's other books. Wow, that's great. And so we went with that and, you know, translated certain passages in the books that haven't been translated yet. But that was a big part. And of course, I needed their permission to do that. Wow. So, and yeah, so that was a big legal issue that actually took quite a long time to iron out and figure out how we're going to do that. And we found passages from their other books that were sort of conceptually similar. So if a passage was reflecting fear, uh, then we would go with something, you know, different in plot, but points, but similar in in the emotion so emotion of fear or you know horror laughter laugh or whatever and that was a huge huge undertaking because there there's at least 20 passages in that book that we had to rework yeah i didn't know where they were from yeah i need those are i think some of them have footnotes but most of them are from uh the uh other books Wow, that's that's because that adds a whole other layer to it, you know, a whole other like meta textual. Yes, oh, it's it's very meta. It's extremely meta, but it kind of made sense, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's really that's a good, you know. I mean, were they like, um, was this kind of like, oh, finally, you know, this will be in English, or were they kind of like, oh, that's nice? I mean, uh, they are 
extremely humble people and they I think they were absolutely overjoyed there actually Vita Nostra is the second book to be published in English uh, there was their novel The Scar that is beautifully translated by Eleanor Huntington and it came out from Tor I believe in maybe 2009 yeah yeah mm-hmm. something like this and that's a absolutely gorgeous gorgeous book it's a part of a it's it's absolutely it's a stunning piece. It's not uh, it's definitely more of a fantasy genre, but it has the same uh, you know depth and uh, the same nuances. It's a wonderful piece of work. And I guess also connected to this is to this question is um, you know you had like you said you've had to make a lot of a lot of decisions and choices um, about how to translate things in this book, because uh, this book has very, lots of different void, like, uh, kind of tones to it where, you know, and lots of different things that are happening where you're, you know, we're always inside her mind, but she's, you know, acting like a normal teenager over here. And then, you know, trying to study this, like, these things that make no sense over there. And, you know, where was there any kind of, um, kind of what kind of decisions did you had to have to make uh while you were translating kind of moving from one scene to another were there kind of things that you had to you know, did you have to like stop after certain scenes you know I definitely I had to stop for a while and just put it aside for uh you know sometimes for a couple of weeks uh after all the scenes that have to do with things beginning to make sense mm. mhm so and and especially things where she's doing the exercises uh, because the language and actually I didn't even think of that consciously. My uh, editor uh, David Primerico, uh, he is uh, he made the book shine. The book is what it is because of his editing, and he noticed the difference in tone. And so we went back from you know from the regular kind of average life descriptions because the way she lives in college is not that dissimilar from how I was in college or how you probably had your college experience or you know years later how my kids uh, are in college right now uh, going through basically the same experiences so you know your typical dorm your your roommates all this uh, parties and the noise and all that is not that dissimilar and the language it's written in is much kind of simpler and um, more really ordinary in a good way uh, than the language of the education scenes so there's a huge difference in town. So when when David pointed it out, I went back and during the round of editing, I was much more self-aware. And so I put a lot more emphasis on those uh, pages that where the tone was different and tried to make smoother transitions. But that was all under David's tutelage. I would not have thought of that. I, I wasn't really processing it as I was translating it. Well, I uh, I have to say that as I've tried to explain to <laughs> to some people, um, editors, you know, they can really see it. It's it's really sometimes just having another pair of eyes. Like, you know, you like you write a book or you translate, and like someone else reads it, and they they notice something that is hard for hard for you to see because you're so in it. 
Absolutely. And and there's, you know, they're, they're professional editors. It's partly their, uh, his incredible love for mm-hmm. this book and his passion for it is one thing. But then he's just better at wordsmithing and he's better at picking up uh, things that will sound better on audio, which I, of course, I didn't even consider. So I was, I put, I put, I will never forgive myself for that. And I even had to uh, uh, email Jessica Ball, who is the actress who did the beautiful narration of Vita Oster, she's brilliant, and but but I had to apologize for putting a she scythe into a sentence. I literally put that in and try saying that, and she managed wow. somehow <laughs> to enunciate that one. So that one, I couldn't forgive myself for doing that. But you know, I didn't think of that. Yeah, the voice actors. Woo. Yeah. No, she's she's incredible. Yeah. It's much harder than I thought. I thought what you just read into a yeah, into a microphone. What's so hard about it? But yeah. It's incredibly difficult. And now I'm so much more aware now that I have a little bit of experience and that I know I'm much more aware of how the sentence would sound if you actually say it out loud versus just seeing it on the page. Yeah, yeah. I, I know some uh, some translators say that when they translate, they will write it out, then they will read it aloud. Yeah, I try. Yeah, I try to do that. I never do that. I, I mean, I don't do that. But then again, I'm not, I'm not a like book length manuscript translating kind of girl. You know, <laughs> I do the shorter stuff. Well, I don't think it matters. The size in this particular case doesn't matter. I think it's just the quality of your writing. But you're you're translating it into your native language. I'm constantly doubting myself. I drop articles like you wouldn't believe in writing. That's the thing that I found fascinating learning Russian, that there are no articles and you don't need yeah. them in Russian. You just don't. No, not at all. Well, trust me, Americans don't need them either. For some reason, you insist on using that. There's no point to articles, I know. And I, I know, I have to say, like, I thought about it, and I thought, why do we even use them? And then when I drop them sometimes, just just because I'm, I mean, I, I, I use lots of slang and, like, shortcuts, and I think it, it hurt, like, it actually hurts my internal ear. Exactly. Yes. And that's why I try, uh, you know, I can't read the entire novel to myself, but I will occasionally, if I doubt a sentence, I will definitely read that out loud. And then I pick up on all the dropped articles and all the stuff that I miss. And it's it's only because I grew up speaking English that, that I have that, like, that inner, you know, I mean, if I moved... Innate ability. Right, like, cause I mean, if I moved to yeah. Russia, mm-hmm. I would probably constantly be like, wait, wait, what am I supposed to do with the articles? <laughs> Well, you know, Russian doesn't have articles, but they have their challenges and the word, you know, verb tenses that will kill you and all that. So it's definitely it's a different challenge. But yeah, articles just I have never met a single Russian who will get the articles right, no matter when you come. And I love when when my because I actually had two uh, Russian piano teachers, of course, and uh, they both just, they were, they didn't even, they were not even bothering with the articles. And I just loved it. I was like, this is great. I love your accent. <laughs> I love the way you talk. <laughs> it's just so great. Um, and yeah, it was because of, uh, it was because of them that I, uh, that I decided to learn Russian. Um, because I thought, you know, I've, I've been, and also like the girls who, who were the nicest girls in my high school were all from, uh, Ukraine, Romania, um, Poland, like, you know, and, and, um, uh, they were, 
like I would hang out with them and they moved back and forth between Russian and English constantly. And I would walk down the halls with them, not knowing half of what they were saying, but that's fine. And, <laughs> and then they'd be like, uh, you know, calling each other by, you know, nicknames and things. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And, you know, I, then I finally would ask like, you know, who, who is Ira? Like, I don't understand. They were like, well, that's short for oh, Irina. Irina. Like, right. And yeah. I'm like, yeah. who's Lianichka? And it's like me, I'm Lianichka. I was like, no, you're Yelena. She's like, yeah. Uh, actually, that was one of the decisions that I made. Um, and I'm kind of regretting it a little bit. Uh, because in the book, uh, Sasha has, you know, a gazillion different names. Everybody ah, calls her something different. Yeah. Her mother says Sashinka. And, you know, and you have the official Alexandra, and then everybody else calls her Sashka. And, and so and her, you know, and their teachers are, uh, they constantly switch between the more formal version, depending if she's screwing up again, um, they call her more formal. But I, you know, it makes sense to me, but it would not make sense to anyone who is not familiar with the Russian names. And so I made that decision. I kept Alexandra for the more official documents. Um, it comes up a couple of times, like when she's accepted to Torpa and things like that. But the rest I just kept as Sasha. Because, you know, I didn't want anyone to have to come up with, like, this table of names and who is who. And... You mean, like, in the Dostoevsky and the... the, the right, yeah. <laughs> and the Tolstoy and the... Six, 16 different versions of the same name. As I think it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't carry the same emotional punch to Americans, to English language uh, audience. And so I decided to just scrap that. Because, I mean, in English, you know, it seems like people have... Yeah, they've got their their like official name, and then there's a nickname, and it's usually just those two. But there can be like for Svetlana, you know, she, like this one girl was called like five different names because right, you know, yeah. Svetlana, Lana, Lana, right. you know, and mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, and that that's that's really interesting. But like, I'm thinking back on my uh, reading of you know. The, classic you know crime and punishment and i was so confused about who was who. <laughs> but the thing is that even if you knew who all these people were all this you know uh, uh different versions it didn't you didn't know what the emotion behind all those names was you didn't know when it was sarcastic or when it was gentle or when it was loving and so then why why are you why are you doing this just to stay true to the original that doesn't make sense so that's one of the, the decisions that I made. Well, that I mean, that's really interesting because I don't really know what other people's like, like if 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 finding the classics and you know reading like Russian classics is is a thing that you know people are still doing in their teen years. Like, I, you know, I I knew a lot of people who did that. When, you know, we were teenagers, but. You know, the book market, you know, has changed so radically that I don't know if people are reading those or if they're reading more young adult now because it's marketed to them, you know, and it seems to be an older audience for young adult. Whereas when I was young adult, I was like, okay, I've read all these kind of, you know, for younger readers books, and now I'm going to move on to the, to the classics. And I didn't understand half of what I was reading, but I was like, I got to read Dostoevsky. You know, I'm already 15. 
What's wrong with me? <laughs> How could you go through life without reading Dostoevsky? I don't know. I, uh, you know, I'm much more. I think of, by raising my own kids, uh, I'm much more relaxed about it. We read for information. Um, and I'm older than you, and my generation, especially people who grew up in Russia, we read for information. It was the way we learned about the world. This generation, I think, and I'm going to sound extremely old, but this generation is so completely different in the way they get information, process it. And, you know, if they read, they read for fun. And thank God, that's how I read now. I have all these other ways of getting information, and I read for fun, for pleasure. So, and I don't only read fantasy, I read other stuff, but, but, you know, I read, well, my, my definition of pleasure is a little different from most people. I read like a little life for pleasure several times in a row and suffer through every page, but, (laughs) but, but that's my way. I like the cathartic feeling. Yeah. I like when things completely deteriorate and I like opera when everybody dies. Exactly. Right. But, but, you know, the the more, the better, you know, the, the worse. The situation is the more the more, more people but, plunging um, knives into their chest, the better. Yeah, exactly. Scre- scre- screaming um, in, in, in C minor. But um, I just think that if the kids uh, or, you know, anybody under 30, let's say, uh, if they read, they read for pleasure and thank God. And that's wonderful. And I think that you can't really learn a lot about the world from Vita Nostra, but it's going to be quite a ride. It's so different. It's emotional and it's cerebral. And and if they read it for for fun, fantastic. That's all we can ask for. Well, it's it's on a very it's I mean it's accessible on my shelves to my seven year olds, like almost seven year olds. It might be a bit early, <laughs> a little. <laughs> they could, you know? could theoretically <laughs> they wait like about three. Four take it years, down and but... <laughs> start reading it. Um, one of them started reading uh, John Galsworthy, and he was like, "I don't even like what." And and then I looked over his shoulder, and I was like, "This is barely even English to to my six year olds." Like, it you know it's. It's like a different English, you know, he, he's like, I don't even, what is this word? It's, it's English, but it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I, I think, you know, and as any normal Russian, I'm going to boast and say I read it at 12, but then I read the translation and uh, Russian school of translation was very different. It's very, it, it's, um, it's very uh, free and creative about mm, its approaches. Mm-hmm. That's a nice way to put it, but they the way they translated was really not uh, uh, being true to the original was not the point. So it was made much more accessible. And if a paragraph didn't make sense to a Russian reader, they would just skip it. And and uh, a Russian Holden Caulfield is much nicer, oh. much nicer than the English speaking. I would one. love he's to read that. <laughs> much. He's so charming. Really? So sympathetic. Oh, that's yeah, funny. I was actually shocked when I read uh, Catcher in the Rye in English. That is so, wow, that, that is not the same book at all. <laughs> no, no, because it really it makes things so different. And he's, he's so, he's kind of a lost soul, but he's not prick, prickly or obnoxious. He's just a sweet boy who can't find love. And it's a little different. Well, at least that's how I read it at, you know, whatever, 14, 15. Yeah, I just, that is so fascinating. Think I, I, cause, you know, thinking about, I, I always think kind of like large, large theme, like, well, when you translate something from one language into another, it's like translating one culture into another. But, but yeah, some very sp- culturally specific 
novels what happens you know and things like you know uh, john steinberg is so much more well known and more read in russia and i think hemingway is probably the Mm -hmm. same way so they're just more accessible i think or were made more accessible to russians and same you know same golsiwarsi we we all read them it was sort of you know a household book oh that's interesting yeah and we just uh, strangely enough where Russians know those authors better than than you guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Galsworthy. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. I think I heard his name like here and there, but never really read him until I was in in my late twenties. Yeah, and see, and and he was on my bookshelf at home, and I grew up with him and read all that. Yeah. So, yeah. And but the school. That's why I'm so happy that there are people passionate about translation in the states because, well, we don't get enough of it. We don't get enough Scandinavian uh, literature. We don't get enough German or even Russian. And that's why it's so incredible to see all this, you know, uh, people who are so incredibly passionate about it. Yeah. And know that there is an audience and there are people who are trying to push more foreign literature into this environment, into publishing. And and it's, it's just, it's really heartwarming to me. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's great. And uh, like, we, oh my God. I could talk to you about this for like five hours. I know, at least, <laughs> at least, yeah, yeah. But I'm going to ask you one more question, which is, uh, can you tell us about your current and future projects and uh, specifically Daughter, is it Daughter from the Dark? Daughter from the Dark, yes. yes. Uh, there are a couple of things that I just finished working on. So Daughter from the Dark is another Tichenko novel. It's not related to Vita Nostra. It's a separate novel. It's a standalone. And it is in Russian, it's called Alona and Aspirin. Um, so Alona is a, a name of a girl and Aspirin is a nickname of uh, the other character. And it is, um, I think for those who loved Vita Nostra, but felt like it was a little too painful for the brain. Um, <laughs> I think that's good. it's going to be really good because it has all the aspects of Vita Nostra, a little bit of a fantasy setup, but the depths of the characters and the transformation and all that is there, emotional transformation. It's all there, but it's a little lighter on the metaphysics. So it's it doesn't hurt as much to read it. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's a beautiful, absolutely stunning novel, but it's not as heavy on the education process as uh, Vita Nostra. So it's a little bit more of a, I don't want to say traditional, but it's definitely lighter uh, reading. And um, it's also shorter. So it's not as difficult. You don't have to walk away from it. Um, If you do, it's only because you're going to be emotionally drained by the end of it so that's um that's coming out on february 11th of uh next year and i i can't wait it's it's wonderful same genre same sort of urban i guess there are elements of horror in it but again not really the point right right you know character development um and another thing that is um it does not have a publication date, and the only thing I can tell you is the more people buy Vita Nostra and Daughter from the Dark, the sooner that publication date will happen. But I did just finish um, the translation of the novel that is a loose 
a loose sequel to Vita Nostra. So I got to be very careful about it. It's from the same cycle called Metamorphosis. It's the same cycle, but it's not Sasha. It's not a continuation of Sasha's story. So I don't want to get anyone's hope hopes up because I've been asked many times. You know, is, is the sequel going to tell me what happened? It's not. It's not. Um, Sasha is mentioned, but she's not really a character in this. Um, it's a completely different novel that can be a completely standalone adventure, but it does answer some of the questions of Vita Nostra. It has something to do with Sasha. That's all I can tell you. Oh, exciting! Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to. No spoilers. <laughs> is it long? Is it long? As long as Vita Nostra? Or is it, no, it's not. No, no, it's it's shorter and it's a little bit more. Um, I think of it as a little bit closer to young adult. Mm-hmm. A little, but it has a little bit of a Lord of the Fly uh, flies flavor Ooh, to it i like i it. can't really you know i i know you're supposed to compare it to things but i can't really because their books just don't get really easily compared to anything yeah they're they're very much there i mean just reading this one i'm like i, I yeah <laughs> it's, it's its own thing you know it's like uh in in certain other like um in uh french books uh like antoine volodine He's his own thing. Like, right. When yeah, I've absolutely. written about French SF and translation, it's like these guys, these guys, and then Volodine over there. He's just doing his well, thing. Yeah, <laughs> I guess, I guess, I guess Murakami is the closest thing I can think of. But it's probably I just finished Killing Commendatory, so it's probably why he's in oh, my mind. Yeah. I haven't gotten to that one yet, but I've read. A, yeah, I've read a bunch of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, he makes your brain work less hard than than like Vita Nostra. <laughs> a little, a little, but I think that both the daughter from the dark and the migrant have all the good parts of Vita Nostra, but they are just a little lighter. Like there's a part of Vita Nostra that I love, and it's really the middle part that's all about that process of learning. Yeah, and it's not yeah. everyone's cup of tea. I loved it, and I think it belongs in there, but I know that. You know, it's it's probably um, it's heavy. It's hard to read. It's extremely rewarding, but it's it's challenging. You know, you got to work for your knowledge. You know, <laughs> well, and you got to be a total geek to you know to like to read about people reading, reading. and learning. So, <laughs> I, I admit it. But, yeah, you know. yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, con- congratulations on all of these projects, and um, you know. Definitely, we need to talk again. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was incredibly fun. Thank you for for coming on and, um, you know, keep us updated on Twitter and... Absolutely. Anywhere else about about the projects. And, you know, I look forward to reading all, all of the translations that you're going to give us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for listening to Speculative Fiction in Translation, a member of the Skiffy and Fanti Network, hosted by Rachel Cordasco and Daniel Hauser.
If you would like to contact the Speculative Fiction in Translation podcast directly, please do so at rachel at sfintranslation.com, or you can visit sfintranslation.com. Additionally, you can find Rachel on Twitter at rcordas and Daniel at read1000lives. To find out more about the podcast on the Skiffy and Fanti network, please visit us at skiffyandfanti.com. If you would like to support the network, you can do so at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanti. To keep up to date on everything that is happening at the Skiffy and Fanti network, please visit skiffyandfanti.com slash newsletter. The music from this podcast is No Disclaimer by Jesse Spillane. To find more about this music, please visit freemusicarchive.org.